Well, good morning and welcome to this seminar, which is a seminar about how we as Christians might respond to the question, wasn't Jesus just a great moral teacher? And so I plan to speak now for 25 minutes only, and then when I'm done, seeing as this is a seminar and not just a talk, I'd like to encourage you to come and ask a question. There's a microphone here, uh, a yellow one, and there's a red one here. And I'm imagining that for at least half the seminar, you guys can come up, we'll ask questions, we can have a discussion, and we can learn more by exploring this very important question. Just to say, my name's Adrian Holloway. I'm based at Everyday Church in Wimbledon uh, with my wife and our four children. And uh, one of the things I do is I go around... Uh, universities in the UK exploring this question in a public format where people ask questions. So I'm very used to exploring this question, usually with people actually who aren't Christians. So this is unusual for me to talk to people who are already Christians on this subject. The blurb on the New Day website for this seminar says, yes, Jesus existed, and probably said lots of very wise things. And I'd agree that Jesus is an example for us to follow. But does it really make sense to say in 2015 that a carpenter was God? I prefer to think of Jesus as just a great moral teacher. And maybe that's what your friends at school or college, that's what they think. That's what they'd say. Many of our friends think that, yes, Jesus existed, but it is convenient for them to think of Jesus as just a good bloke. Jesus was inspiring, Jesus was an example, but he did live a very long time ago and he was nothing more than an example. Now, our response to that could be to say that Jesus can't be just a good moral teacher because the claims that Jesus made about himself were so outrageous. Jesus' claims about himself were so far-fetched. They were so jaw-dropping. They were so wild. Jesus' claims about himself were so extreme that Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. Now, of course, some people will respond by saying, well, okay, but how do we know that Jesus ever made these outrageous claims about his own importance. So let's begin this morning with a brief recap of the case for the reliability of the Gospels, because it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John which record Jesus' outrageous claims. We have several early non-Christian sources for Jesus. These are non-biblical sources. For example, Josephus, a Jewish historian. We have Lucian of Samosata. We have Tacitus, the main Roman historian of this period. We have Pliny the Younger, an important Roman official, and we have the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, and in fact, several others. But let's just think about those. And let's begin our seminar by asking, what would we know about Jesus from the ancient world if we totally ignored the Bible? Well, 
both Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny the Talmud and Lucian imply that he was a powerful and honored teacher. Third, the Talmud indicates that Jesus performed miraculous feats, but was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this happened under Pontius Pilate. The Talmud says it was on the eve of the Passover, which is exactly when the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believed that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, this is a promising start. It turns out there is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from early non-Christian and even anti-Christian sources. And there are good reasons for thinking that Mark's gospel was written sometime around 60 AD. That's the earliest of the four so-called gospels. Now, if Jesus died in 33 AD, that would be a time gap of 60 minus 33 equals 27 years. Now, if you come back here on Friday we will see documentary evidence for the resurrection of Christ that we can date back to within two years of the actual event. But just for the seminar, let's take the 27 years. Question, isn't 27 years a very long time gap? Answer, not if it's an eyewitness account. The important thing about the New Testament is that much of it is the work of eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter, Peter's gospel, Peter's account is written up by Mark, but Mark is Peter's traveling companion, and Mark himself is an actor in the New Testament story. We can see Mark in the narrative. Meanwhile, Luke traveled with Paul. Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Okay, somebody says, how do we know that the New Testament that we've got today is an accurate copy of what was originally written, especially as the original parchments have since disappeared? Well, firstly, we can be confident because the earliest copies of the New Testament we have are written so close to the originals. In fact, in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, here in England, there is a, a part of the New Testament that was written just 40 years after the original. Secondly, we can be confident because we've got so many copies, and as a result of the vast number of identical copies, that whoever was doing the copying must have been copying very accurately. Otherwise, if there had been deliberate or even accidental miscopying going on, all the copies would all be saying different things. But if all the copies are saying the same thing, then whoever's been doing the copying must have been copying accurately. So we have got good reasons 
folks for thinking that the Gospels do contain original eyewitness evidence, reports about Jesus, and that that information has not been corrupted by later exaggeration or miscopying. So what do we know about the historic Jesus? Well, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college or university. He never visited a modern city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He had no credentials but himself. He was deserted by his friends. He died the death of a common criminal, age 33, with no money. Yet today, 2,000 years later, Jesus is considered to be the most influential person who's ever lived. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not influenced the life of humanity on this planet as much as that one solitary life lived by Jesus. And let's be clear, even if we did accept that those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are reliable, it would still be, wouldn't it, a massive step for us to come to think that a carpenter was God. Isn't it more likely that Jesus was just a great or a good moral teacher? So who was Jesus? Well, only a tiny number of human beings have ever claimed to be God. Most of those are suffering mental illness, and few have won any followers, because it's a pretty demanding role. But at Jesus' trial, the Jewish high priest asks Jesus the question point blank, and Jesus answers, I am. And then it all kicks off, why do we need any more witnesses? You yourselves have heard the blasphemy the high priest says, and they all decide to kill him. Jesus also tells them that at one point he'd visibly return to earth on the clouds. Now, I don't know about you, but as a skeptic myself, I am reassured that the disciples struggle to believe all of this stuff. Take Thomas, for example. Thomas reacts exactly as you or I would have done if we'd been there. The report goes out that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas then says exactly what you would have said or what I would have said if we'd been there. Thomas says, yeah, Jesus has risen from the dead. Listen, I would only come to believe that if I put this finger in the hole in his hands where, I, where the nails went, and if I put this fist right up into the, the spear wound hole in his if I do that, yeah, things will change. And then, of course, there comes that climactic moment when the resurrected Jesus turns up. And Jesus, in my opinion, rather helpfully says 
Put your finger here, Jesus says. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Jesus says, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, as you see I have. At that moment, the moment of truth, Thomas worships Jesus. Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And I've always thought that's a cracking moment for Jesus to correct Thomas, for Jesus to put the record straight just once and for all and say, oh, no, 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 Thomas. No, you you got completely the wrong end of the stick. I'm not your Lord and your God. Thomas, come on, stop worshipping me. I'm, I'm just a great moral teacher. But Jesus doesn't say that. No, Jesus tells Thomas off for being so slow to believe the truth. You see, it's Jesus who goes overboard making claims about himself. Jesus goes around saying that he is the answer. He points to himself as the truth. Jesus predicts that he's going to be killed, but he says, hey, don't worry when they kill me. Three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then Jesus predicts he'll ascend to heaven. And then he says at some point in the future, he's going to come back in the sky and return visibly with all the angels. And then this carpenter from Nazareth tells us that he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and everyone who's ever lived will be resurrected and arraigned before him. And then Jesus says that he, the local carpenter, is going to judge everyone who's ever lived. Jesus claims not only to be the judge on judgment day, Jesus also claims to be the criteria for judgment. And so at this point, I suppose it does matter who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is telling the truth to us about this, then everyone here will meet him whether we believe in Jesus or not. You know, one of the most respected Bible teachers of the 20th century was a man called John Stott. And John Stott was asked why he had become a Christian in the first place. And John Stott's answer was that when he began looking at what Jesus claimed about himself, for example, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, Jesus here is referring to the historic founder of the Jewish nation, Abraham. He's talking about a man who's already been dead for 1,800 years when this conversation takes place. Understandably, the Jews answer, what? You're not yet 50 years old, Jesus, and you claim to have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Because I am was God's name. When asked about his name in the Old Testament, God answers, I am who I am. So for any manual laborer from Nazareth to go around calling himself, I am, was outrageous. And that is why the people who were actually there who heard Jesus say that That's why 
they picked up stones to stone Jesus to death. The people who were there at the time, they didn't think, oh yeah, he's just claiming to be a good moral teacher. No, they tried to kill him because they thought he was claiming to be God. You know, one of the big surprises when I first read the New Testament is how much Jesus talks about himself. Yes, Jesus is humble, but he's not modest. Jesus was quite matter-of-fact about his own importance. His message was, hey, if you want to have a relationship with God, you need to come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus met people who were hungry for love, for security, for significance. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In other words, if you want to have your hunger satisfied, you need to come to me. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink. Jesus met people who were looking for direction. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will walk in the light and will never walk in darkness. Jesus met people who were dissatisfied with life. And Jesus said, I can give you abundant life in this life, and I can deliver eternal life in the next. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If any of you dies and believes in me, you'll live. One time, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, what does God look like? They said, Jesus, just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus' reply was, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. These are the sort of outrageous claims that hit John Stark for six. I mean, let me ask you, what would you make of somebody who walked around the campsite this afternoon forgiving sins. You'd think, who do you think you are? The Lord God Almighty? It seems that that is exactly who Jesus thought he was. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The result Again, it says the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And the result, they confirm that they're stoning him for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. John 10, 33. John Stott felt that anyone who constantly made these kind of egocentric, egotistic claims would naturally come over as tiresomely self-important and annoying. John Stott expected to find Jesus unbearably arrogant. And yet, it is obvious that Jesus came over to people as being the most humble person imaginable. And so John Stott thought, how can anyone make these kind of outrageous claims about their own importance and at the same time strike everybody as being the picture of humility. How is that even possible? And that is what first made John Stott wonder and suspect that Jesus' outrageous claims might be accurate.
I found that the attractive thing in Christianity is not any particular doctrine. I found that the attractive thing in Christianity is a person, the person of Christ. And Jesus' moral purity made him very attractive to people. Jesus had no guile in him. Listening to Jesus was like drinking a glass of cool, clear water on a hot, sunny day. You wanted to be with him. People were prepared to put their total trust in him because they knew that he was for real. He claimed to have never sinned, and people believed him. Yeah, 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 but hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Just time out. Just because Jesus claimed to be God... It doesn't mean he was. I mean, loads of people make outrageous claims. Maybe Jesus was just a gifted crowd manipulator. I mean, he had the gift of the gab. Maybe he won a big following. And, well, if that's true, he also got himself killed in the process. And he certainly didn't make a single penny out of it. So what are the alternatives? C.S. Lewis was an atheist English don at Oxford University, and Lewis underwent an intellectual conversion to Christianity partly through talking to his colleague J.R.R. Tolkien. And Lewis had a genuinely encyclopedic knowledge of ancient and medieval literature. And he just read the Gospels again and again in his room in Magdalen College, Oxford. And he famously concluded that Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. In other words, that Jesus was bad, Jesus was mad, or Jesus was God. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd have to be insane or else he'd be evil. You must make your choice, he writes. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he was insane or evil. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good moral teacher, a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is arguing if Jesus knew that he wasn't God, but then he went around saying that he was, then Jesus was a liar. If alternatively Jesus wasn't God, but he genuinely thought that he was, then Jesus would be a lunatic. Either way, if Jesus isn't God, then we've rumbled the biggest deception in the history of humanity. But if alternatively Jesus is God, well, that's a pretty big deal too. So what do you think? Was Jesus a liar? Remember, we're talking here about a liar who sends people to their deaths by guaranteeing them heaven, while all the time knowing that he couldn't deliver heaven. Remember, Jesus did did, did encourage his followers to be martyred if that's what it took. But if Jesus knew that he couldn't deliver paradise, that would make Jesus a horribly evil liar, sending people to their deaths for no good reason. He would also be the world's most successful liar because he deceived billions of people into thinking that he was the holiest and most loving man who ever lived while all the time deliberately lying. What is more, 
he really pushed the boat out when he claimed to be sinless. But Jesus the liar pulls it off. He's surrounded by his accusers in John chapter 8 verse 46. And he says, now, can any of you here prove me guilty of sin? Yet none of them could. Not even Jesus' enemies could fault his character. If Jesus is a liar, what are we supposed to make of his love for lepers and the poor? He spent most of his time with the outcasts of society. But the clincher for me is his avoidable death. You see, folks, Jesus does get killed for claiming to be God. What is to be gained by dying for something that you know isn't true? Yet even when he's on the cross, when they're literally killing him, he's only got seconds left to live. At that point, he prays for the people who are killing him. He says, Father, forgive them. I mean, at that point, he's only got seconds left. Why carry on with the liar act? Why not just give up? So on the cross, Jesus looks genuine. As he's dying, he doesn't look like a liar. He looks like he's sincere and genuine. Okay, but maybe he was deluded. I mean, don't you think he might have been a lunatic? You would think this option would win some supporters. But Jesus shows no signs of being mentally ill, quite the opposite. Besides, are we really going to say that the last 2,000 years of European history and Western history and our entire legal system have all been based on the sayings of a madman? No one has yet improved on Jesus' moral teaching. Could any of us read Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount now, close the book, look up, and say, those are the words of a lunatic? And how about the prophecies? Jesus fulfilled 322 prophecies or predictions, all of which were written down in the Old Testament at least 400 years before Jesus was even born. And many of these are minutely specific things that Jesus would have had no control over. For example, the exact manner of his death is foretold, including details like the fact that the Roman soldiers would gamble and cast lots for his clothing at the foot of the cross. The fact that the soldiers would thrust a spear through his side, which wasn't normal procedure. It was just a spur-of-the-moment thing that one of them did. All of these details are predicted hundreds of years before. Jesus had no control over those events. Even the place of his birth is predicted in Micah 5 verse 2 that it's Bethlehem. Now let's suppose that Jesus was a, a con man and he's going around Israel artificially trying to fulfill prophecies. Well at this point he'd come unstuck because he'd be reading the Old Testament and he'd think, oh no, I can't believe it. I'm supposed to have been born in Bethlehem. Well, you can't go back and change that. I reckon a lunatic could have got lucky and fulfilled a few prophecies. I reckon a liar might have been able to arrange a handful deliberately. But could any of us really read all 322 Old Testament prophecies and then say that a liar or a lunatic could have fulfilled more than a handful? Yet Jesus fulfilled all 322 and he fulfilled 29 of them in a single day, the day 
that he died. Now, maybe the strongest evidence for Jesus being God is the evidence for his resurrection, and we'll look at that here on Friday. The handbook says it's on Saturday, but actually it'll be Friday, and Andrew Wilson's talk on suffering will be Saturday, so the handbook's wrong, and we'll look at the evidence for the resurrection on Friday here. But just on the basis of today, I wonder what do you think? Was Jesus God? Does it make sense to you to say that Jesus was evil, to say that Jesus was insane? Because as Sherlock Holmes put it, when you've eliminated the alternatives, whatever you are left with must be the truth. C.S. Lewis concluded, we are faced then with a frightening conclusion. Either Jesus was and is exactly who he said he was, or else he was insane, or something worse. And so because the evil and because the insane options just don't work, they aren't believable, they're too far-fetched, C.S. Lewis concludes, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to conclude that Jesus was and is God. And that the one thing Jesus cannot be is just a good moral teacher. Okay, that's the end of my talk, and it's time for questions. Thank you. Okay, well, you're welcome to come forward. There's a microphone here and a microphone here, formal orderly queue. I said it'd be a 25-minute talk. It was a 27-minute talk, but we've still got loads of time. If you want to ask some questions, come forward now, and uh, I'll respond to these. I promise we'll finish this seminar on time at 12.30. So any questions, anyone? Come forward, and let's get a bit of interaction going. Who's got a question? Somebody want to go first? Questions on the subject, wasn't Jesus just a good moral teacher? Or it might be some other question that you have that's related to this that you'd like to ask. Great. It always takes one person to break the ice and then we're away. Go for it. Come and form, If you want to come and queue up here, that's fine. Go for it. Um, I have a question. It's kind of regarding this, but not really. I was thinking, like... If could, could you speak right into the microphone because I can't hear, sorry. If Jesus is all-knowing, yeah, doesn't that mean like he knows what kind of people are going to heaven, what people are going to hell, who's going to commit the sins, who's not going to follow him? Does that mean I, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to stop you. Could somebody turn off the fan because I can't hear anything that this young lady is saying at all, even though I'm standing just a few yards away? I'm ever so sorry. I'll come down and stand near you while we're sorting it out. Go, I'm sure, I know you can hear, it's just that I can't hear. Go for it. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Does that mean if Jesus is all-knowing that people are already condemned to hell from birth? If Jesus is all-knowing, does that mean that some people are condemned to hell from birth? Is that, is that your yeah, question? Yeah, because if he knows the layer of people's lives, doesn't, he mean, doesn't that mean he knows who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? Okay, this is a superb question that I will try and uh, get into. Um, the Bible is clear that the reason, I mean, first of all, the whole concept of hell is emotionally the, probably the most troubling thing in the New Testament. Um, in fact, let me just say, it's quite interesting that 
most people assume that there's lots about hell in the Old Testament because people think, oh, God's really angry in the Old Testament. Then he kind of cheers up a bit in the New Testament. Or people think that really it's Paul who teaches about hell because Jesus is all very loving. Whereas actually you and I know that most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. So if Jesus really is just a good moral teacher, it's really weird that he talked about hell so much because that would make him a bad or a nasty moral teacher who goes around saying horrible things that we don't like. So it's quite significant that Jesus talks so much about hell. And what the Bible says about hell is that the reason why people go to hell, if they do go to hell, is because they've sinned. It's not because they were unlucky, for example, to live in the wrong place. It is something that is a just punishment because the fact that they actually did something wrong. They committed at least one sin or, in my case, many sins. And so, therefore, the Bible doesn't teach that God is sending people to hell in an arbitrary way because he's kind of planned that this should happen or because, um, you know, maybe they live in the wrong place and it's all pre-planned. The main thrust of what the Bible is saying is that people go to hell because they sinned. Now, as we look at the situation, we think, probably, that hell is an over-the-top punishment for sin. So, for example, when I think about my life, I think of myself as, you know, I, I, t I have a fairly optimistic, upbeat view. You know, I excuse myself from all sorts of things. But I think we're going to have to say that it could be that if God really is God, that he can see the big picture. And that the moral gulf between God and me, even though I might think I'm a great bloke, actually there's a vast difference. And if heaven really is a perfect place, then only a perfect person would be able to go there. The Bible says about heaven that it's a totally pure and perfect place. That's what Revelation teaches. So I'd need to get into a perfect person, in this case Christ, to be there forever. So the Bible also teaches, and this may be something worth exploring, that there are different degrees of punishment in hell. That some will be punished more severely than others. Actually, God's punishment is not arbitrary. Some will suffer more than others. That's Jesus' teaching on the subject. Also, the Bible makes clear that children won't be in hell. There's an occasion when um, King David is praying earnestly for his child who's dying. And he makes clear when the child does die that he is confident that child will be in heaven. Also, we have this amazing experience of how people who haven't even heard the name of Jesus... And if you know an Iranian Christian, there's a very good chance that your Iranian Christian friend was converted without having ever met a Christian. And it does seem that God sends dreams to people in what we would call closed countries or Muslim countries where people can't hear about Jesus. And often through a dream, that person will then seek to find out more about Jesus until eventually they get to a point where they find out the good news. So, for example, I know of one story of an Iranian military officer who had a dream about Jesus, and in the dream, he saw himself standing at a particular petrol station, and that he would receive something important from a man in a jeep. So he goes to the petrol station, he's in his military uniform, and as a missionary, 
with a cheap pack full of Bibles is driving past the petrol station. The missionary feels I should stop, doesn't know why. And he walks to the petrol station to find this military man who approaches him and says, I saw you in a dream, have you got something to give me? And the missionary thinks, aha, (laughs) maybe this is where I go back to my Jeep and get a Bible. So all sorts of things like that can happen. And so it would be very foolish to think that all of those people who are in those parts of the world, they don't have any access to Christianity because God can send um, the gospel to people even in those circumstances. So yes, the doctrine of hell is emotionally troubling. Probably the most emotionally troubling thing for me about being a Christian is to read what Jesus says about hell. It's theologically troubling, but it's not necessarily wrong. And just because I don't like it, just because I struggle with it, doesn't mean that actually from the benefit of eternity, when you're looking back from heaven's vantage point, it might make more sense then than it does now. And it could be that God's judgment really is fair, even though from our point of view it seems to be over the top. I think we're just going to have to suspend judgment on this question. And as we get to know more about God's character, and remember, everything else we find out about Jesus is to do with his character, his love, and his uh, compassion for people. And so, in my opinion, it's quite unlikely that Jesus will ultimately turn out to be a nasty piece of work in the way that he judges people, where everything else we know about him is that God is just. And in the Old Testament, it says, will not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer, I think, must be yes, that God will judge justly, and we're going to have to leave it with him. So uh, there's a a really good first question. Yeah, did you have a question? Um, Yeah, couldn't, sorry, couldn't you argue that Jesus just wanted to um, leave an everlasting legacy? So he was a bad man, but he kind of thought, I can leave a lasting impact on the world. So that's why he carried on to his death. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And sorry, what, uh, what was your name? Come, come back and tell me your name. Thank um, you so Toby. much. Toby. Toby, I think that's a great question. Could it be that Jesus wanted to leave his mark and go down in history? Well, I think in some senses we could say that's a possibility but it wouldn't make sense of all the evidence that we have for Jesus. Most obviously, that would not make sense of his prediction that he is going to return from the dead. You see, if I just really want to make a big splash, and let's, say it's, let's imagine that I have got some great moral teaching that I've dreamt up or I've got from somewhere, I wouldn't then stake my reputation by saying, look, if you really want to know whether I've got any credibility, Just watch this. Those religious guys, the Sanhedrin, the rulers and the elders, the teachers of the Lord, the Pharisees, they're going to kill me. But just watch. Three days later, I'll rise from the dead. Well, at that point, of course, if he is just a good moral teacher who wants to make a mark, he definitely wouldn't rise from the dead because he'd just be like anybody else. So at that point, um, that's, I think, a really good example of how Jesus must be more than a great moral teacher. I think the resurrection turns out to be decisive. Yes, do you want to have a question? Anybody else want to come up? You can ask about something. You've got a question as well. Come and join the queue. Yeah, go for it. In relation to the prophecies that were fulfilled, could it be possible that a writer in knowledge of these prophecies would write it in a way that would fulfill these prophecies? So as not... Sorry. So as these prophecies would not be fulfilled, people would look back at this and say, Jesus did not fulfill these prophecies. 
Okay, this is, a, this is another... I'm really impressed. Hey, we haven't had many questions, but they are all absolutely top-notch. These are great questions. Could it be that actually the gospel writers, for whatever reason, are really keen to try and persuade you that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies? And so, it's the gospel writers who are pointing out the fulfilled prophecies. And let's be clear... If you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew is falling over himself to point out the fulfilled prophecies. And so sometimes you get a fulfilled prophecy and the gospel writer will say, oh, and by the way, by the way, just so that you know, this fulfills Isaiah 53 or this fulfills Psalm 22. And Matthew in particular is really keen to point that out. Could it be that the gospel writers are doing the fulfilling of the prophecies and Jesus actually didn't fulfill those prophecies. I think that brings us back to the first question, which is their reliability in the first place. You see, if we have lots of eyewitness evidence, for example, for the resurrection of Christ, then that would be good reason to think that that event actually took place. And if the resurrection of Christ took place, that would be something that wouldn't be a gospel writer contriving an artificial and, in fact, an untrue fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that would be a supernatural event. By any definition, even an arch-skeptic would have to admit that somebody properly dead for three days who later comes back from the dead, that would be a, the only credible explanation for that would be a supernatural event. Now, there are lots of other reasons why I think the gospel writers can be trusted. We can test Luke's reliability in terms of the geography that he reports, in terms of place names that he mentions, in terms of naming Roman officials by the right names, in terms of archaeological discoveries that fit in with the Bible. If we have more time, we could talk quite a lot about all the reasons why we should think that the gospels are historically reliable. There are lots of good reasons for thinking the Gospels can be trusted, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm confident that this isn't the Gospel writers saying that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, it's that Jesus really did. Go for it. Um, hey, I was just wanting to ask, if the Bible says that all sins are equal, why are most Christians more against homosexuality than any other sins like sex before marriage and tattoos? <laughs> Oh, that's a great question. If the Bible teaches that all sins are equal, then why are most Christians particularly focused on homosexuality or sex outside marriage or tattoos? Okay, that was an interesting question. Thank you for that very good question. I think this question partly depends on where in the world you live. So there are parts of the world where if I was a Christian, I think I probably would get the impression that Christians are very focused on the issue of homosexuality. If you live in Europe, I don't think most Christians would get the impression that what the church is really banging on about all the time is homosexuality. But there are parts of the world um, where you might get that impression. And if you live in Europe and you get that impression, then that's a tragedy because you are absolutely right. The Bible is clear that sin is a problem, but there is no passage that I'm aware of which says that homosexuality is the greatest sin 
And then there are other sins like, for example, having sex with somebody that you're not married to, having, you know, that, and then there are other sins like lying and greed, and these are, these are kind of low-level, doesn't really matter sins, but really the big... I don't know of a Bible passage that teaches that. There are Bible passages that mention homosexuality. I can think of two in the Old Testament which are very clear. I can think of three in the New Testament which are really clear. It is something that the Bible disapproves of. It's clearly something the Bible teaches. Homosexual sex is something the Bible teaches is sin. But I think that the big deal in our culture would be that the Bible says that all sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is sin. That would be the big deal. Homosexuality would be part of that, but it would be a relatively small part of that. And that's one of the reasons why on Thursday Steve Wilson will be here and we'll do a whole seminar on that question, on the question of sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And just if you're interested, on, uh, in previous New Days we've got into the subject of homosexuality. We had Sam Albury here uh, and he did a talk on Is God Anti-Gay? Then we had Ed Shaw here last year and uh, he's written a book called The Plausibility Problem where again we looked at this subject of homosexuality. Any other questions? And then there's just a, a few things I'd like to say as we close. Anybody else have a question? Please do come forward. I'm just going to wrap up with a few uh, pr- uh, closing uh, remarks, if that's okay. But please do come forward as I'm speaking, and then we will finish bang on time. Sometimes people ask on this subject, if Jesus really did claim to be God, then why was he so cryptic? Why didn't Jesus literally walk around saying, I'm God, I'm God, hello, I'm God, my name's Jesus, I'm God, hello, I'm God, hello, I'm God. Why, why not do that? The reason was because Jesus knew that every time he got close to saying that, they picked up stones to stone him, and he knew that to fulfill the prophecies, he needed to die in Jerusalem by crucifixion. Therefore, he was careful about how he made those claims. When we read the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And if you happen to have done religious studies O-level on Mark's Gospel, you've probably written an essay or several essays on Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man. N.T. Wright, who's one of the leading New Testament scholars in Britain today, he says that to a first century Jew, Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man would be more obviously a claim to be God than Jesus saying he was the Son of God. Why is that? Because everyone living in that culture would know it's a reference to Daniel, an Old Testament prophet, where there's a divine figure, a God figure called the Son of Man. So the Son of Man to us is like, what's that? We're all the Son of Man. But to those people who first heard Jesus use that phrase, it would have meant to them that he was claiming to be God. But was Jesus really that cryptic? He gets crucified for blasphemy. He claimed to be greater than Abraham, to be greater than Jacob, to be the Son of God, to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the way to heaven, to be able to give everlasting life, to be entrusted with all judgment. He let other people believe that he was the Messiah. So I don't think Jesus was that cryptic. I think he was clear about his claims. Sometimes people say, isn't it really just in John's gospel that you get all this Jesus claiming to be God stuff? And you don't get so much of it in Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's just in John that you get it. Well, I'm not sure. In 
Mark 14 and Matthew 26, you get Jesus calling himself, I am. In fact, at his trial, he says, I am. And he says, you will see, this is Mark 14, 62, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is in Mark's claim, in Mark's gospel. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus says this, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of God, coming on the clouds of heaven. So Matthew 24, you get Jesus talking about his return. Matthew 25, you get Jesus talking about himself being a judge. You get all sorts of references. What about Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus talks about baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So clearly, Jesus in Matthew's gospel is talking himself as part of the Trinity. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another question that sometimes people ask is, what about Richard Dawkins' claim that C.S. Lewis missed out a category and that in fact Jesus was just mistaken? Well, one of the leading atheists of recent years, a man sadly recently died, Christopher Hitchens, he disagrees with his fellow atheist, Richard Dawkins. Hitchens wrote, in contrast to people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the famous founders of the USA, I'm bound to say that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, is more honest. Hitchens says, without a line to the Almighty and a conviction that the last days are upon us, Christopher Hitchens asks, how is it moral to claim, as Jesus did, a monopoly on access to heaven or to threaten waverers with everlasting fire, let alone to condemn fig trees and persuade devils to infest the bodies of pigs? Such a person, Hitchens says, if not divine, would be a sorcerer and a fanatic. In other words, mistaken wouldn't fit what we know about Jesus. If I say to you, oh, I thought the train was at 21 minutes past, but actually it was 19 minutes, I've been mistaken. Oh, I thought the French exam was on Thursday, but actually now I'm looking on the website, it's actually on Wednesday afternoon. I was mistaken. That's mistaken. To make the sort of claims Jesus did about himself, that there wouldn't just be a mistake, it would be insanity. Or as Christopher Hitchens says, it would be a sorcerer, or a fanatic who would say such things. Other people say, could there be a fourth category that C.S. Lewis missed out? So Lewis had Lord, liar, or lunatic. And so Bart Ehrman, who's a New Testament scholar and critic of Christianity or evangelical Christianity, says, what about the category of legend? Couldn't it be that Jesus, this divine Jesus, was a legend that kind of grew up over time, that snowballed over the centuries. There was embellishment, there was exaggeration until eventually you've got Jesus being the Son of God. Could it be that the divine Jesus is just a legend? Do you know, Bart Ehrman could not have picked a worse person to accuse of a lack of knowledge of legend because it just so happens that C.S. Lewis' area of expertise was legend. C.S. Lewis used to play a game at Magdalen College, Oxford, in the common room, where he challenged anyone to go down into the library 
at Magdalen College Oxford and take any book at random and then start reading from that book and Lewis claimed he would immediately be able to tell you what the book was from the sentence you were reading and even where the book was placed in the library. This is a guy who had an encyclopedic knowledge of legend. He studied Norse legends, he studied ancient legends, he studied medieval legends and Lewis said, I have read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that the Gospels are not the same sort of thing. Lewis was someone who could explain to you what the features of a legend are. For example, after the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus is having breakfast with the disciples, they go out fishing and they bring back a catch of fish, 153 fish. Lewis explains this is the sort of detail that you don't find in legend. In legend, you don't find all sorts of features that you do find in Christianity. For example, in Christianity, in the Gospels, you've got all sorts of embarrassing material that you'd never leave in if you're trying to create a legend. For example, in ancient society, in Jewish society, in Greek society, in Roman society, the testimony of a woman was not valid in a court of law. Here comes a new religion, Christianity, trying to persuade the world that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the key moment. Who are the star witnesses, the first people to witness both the empty tomb and the resurrection? Women. You would never, if you were trying to convince the world that your new religion that you've just created is true, you would never make women the the key witnesses of your two major events because at the time, sadly, unbelievably for us, at the time a woman's evidence wasn't even valid. So immediately Christianity would have been undermined in the minds of the first people who heard about it. When we read the Gospels, we find lots of embarrassing material about the disciples. We find they're constantly getting it wrong. We find they're competing with each other. You'd never leave that in. There's all sorts of embarrassing stuff in the Gospels that you would never leave in the Gospels if you were trying to contrive or invent Christianity. Final question I just want to look at here. Jesus claims sound arrogance isn't arrogance a sin. I want to say that I think the things that make Jesus different are, first of all, the context of miracles. Remember, Jesus' miracles aren't just recorded in the New Testament but they are also referred to in the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. The Jewish Babylonian Talmud is the most violently anti-Christian source that we have. And even that source refers to Jesus as a miracle worker. Also, his moral teaching and his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy all mean that in that context, if you're fulfilling 322 Old Testament prophecies, if you're doing miracles, if you're doing that kind of moral teaching then when you claim to be more than just a great moral teacher, I think I take your claim more seriously than just the average person. Let's have one more question, then we're done. Do you want to ask your question? And then we'll bring things to a close and finish on time like I said we would. Yeah, go for it. Um, I've had some friends that say that uh, maybe Jesus was actually dead when he was crucified, that maybe he just uh, woke up in the tomb and got out. And I keep running out of things to argue with that. Yeah, okay, this is a good question, and the good news is that we'll spend quite a lot of time on Friday here looking at that. Could it be that Jesus was already dead 
Uh, well, the question is actually about the survival, isn't it? That he, he survived and he, in the cool air of the tomb, maybe he, he recovered. Well, there's a number of reasons why I think we can be confident that Jesus died on the cross. One, because the Romans were experts at executing people. And if a prisoner is avoided death, if they escaped death on the cross, then the soldiers, the crucifixion team, were liable to be put to death themselves. So those blokes who were on the crucifixion team, they had a massive incentive to make sure that Jesus was dead before they took his body down. And that is why, even though he was already dead, they shoved the spear up into his heart. And we now know that the separation of water and blood that came out of the spear wound is good medical evidence that Jesus was already dead. And we have good reason to think that John, who recorded that detail, wouldn't have known that the separation of water and blood is good evidence that Jesus was already dead. Also, because of the way that they embalmed bodies at that time and put spices on them and so on and so forth, Jesus would have had to unwrap himself from yards of cloth and we know that Jesus, when he did resurrect, was able to persuade his disciples that if they followed him, they could have a glorious resurrection body just like his. So if Jesus had struggled in having thrown off the embalming fluids, having pushed the stone away, overpowered the guards, killed them all or pushed them out of the way, he would still have had all these wounds and he would have looked a pretty awful sight. And yet we know he persuaded his disciples that if they followed him, they could look as wonderful as he did. So historically, there's no good reason to think Jesus survived crucifixion. Here's the main reason why I think that Jesus died on the cross. There are no sources at the time that suggest that Jesus survived crucifixion. The only alternative account we have from ancient times for anything other than the physical resurrection of Christ is that the disciples came to steal the body and that then they contrived the resurrection. So even at the time, the Jews weren't saying that Jesus survived crucifixion. And we find a Jewish man called Trypho, a hundred years after the resurrection, still repeating that story that the disciples stole the body, which shows us that the tomb was definitely empty because if they'd had the dead body of Jesus, the Jews or the Romans would have produced it. So we can be sure that the empty tomb is historic and we have every reason to think that Jesus died on the cross and we have no good historic reasons for thinking Jesus survived crucifixion. So I think we can be really confident on that fact. And interestingly, that is not something that the new atheists are arguing. The new atheists aren't saying, oh yeah, Jesus survived crucifixion. They're all pretty clear that Jesus died by crucifixion. It's a great question. Guys, you've been ever so patient. Tomorrow we will be back here. Jay Smith will be here. We have the leading expert on Islam in the UK. We'll be teaching here. Steve Wilson here is on Thursday talking about sex outside marriage. I'll speak about the resurrection on Friday and on Saturday, Andrew Wilson will talk about why does God allow suffering. 